everyone. Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. What's going on in health and wellness this week? We've got the latest info and tips to help you take care of your body, your brain, and your well-being. You're sick or injured, and you need help right away. So you go to the emergency room, where you assume doctors and nurses will help you. It's so ingrained that we almost take it for granted. It's even a federal law. The Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act mandates that hospitals must provide a certain level of medical care to anyone who comes to their emergency department. But a new investigation by WebMD and Georgia Health News found that more than 1,600 hospitals across the U.S. have violated that law in the past 10 years. In some cases, those violations were deadly for patients who came to the ER looking for help. Today, we're joined by Valerie Bashida, director of WebMD News and Special Reports, and Andy Miller, CEO and editor of Georgia Health News. Both of them worked on this investigation that took eight months of reporting, and now they're going to help us dive into it. Valerie and Andy, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. First of all, tell us about this law and what it's designed to do. Well, EMTALA was uh, designed uh, to to basically uh, allow patients who didn't have insurance or who had uh, lesser levels of insurance to be able to get the same treatment as someone who had very generous benefits. And there were problems uh, back in the 80s with a lot of patients who were turned away because they were from private hospitals, either because they were uninsured or perceived as unable to pay. And so 1986, Congress passed a law and President Reagan signed it, uh, MTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, and it's been in force ever since more than 30 years. And yet your reporting showed that thousands of violations of this law across the U.S. in a 10-year period, cases where people who needed emergency help went to the hospital and didn't get it. Give us an idea of the scope of this problem. Which hospitals are violating this law and exactly what are they doing? Well, we found that basically a third of hospitals have had some kind of violations over the past 10 years, and some are, some have, have had many repeated violations of it. And basically, the, the, the most common violation is a failure to do an adequate medical screening exam for, that, for patients who come into the ER. And that can take many forms, uh, either patients have to wait too long or... In, in some cases, they actually left the ER because the, the wait time was too long. And some got sicker and sicker without getting the care that they needed. And uh, some were sent away from the hospital and then got even even further sick than what they were when they arrived. And so that that's the most common violation. There were also violations that we found based on inadequate transfers of one patient to, from one hospital to another to get specialized services. And, uh, but uh, it was pretty consistent. We, we found hundreds every year. They don't seem to be going down at all. And we also found that the Southeast tended to have more violations than other areas of the country in terms of hospital violations. These violations can be deadly in some cases. One of the people you highlight in the report was Randy Strickland, from Arkansas. He went to the ER feeling nauseous, trembling, and with a fever. He waited there for several hours before his family actually had to call an ambulance, which picked him up from the hospital parking lot and drove him to that same hospital's ER. 
and he eventually died. Tell us what federal investigators found out about his case. Well, they, they, they simply did not, the, the hospital involved, which is injectional outfits on North Metro, they simply didn't do an adequate medical screening exam when he got there. And he essentially waited for hours, he and his wife and son. And as you said, they, they had to go out to the parking lot and call 911 to actually get somebody to actually help them. The ambulance crew brought them back into the hospital. And finally, the, the team at the, at the at North Metro finally started treatment, but by that time he was in such septic shock that they were unable to really bring him back and he eventually died that day. And a very tragic case, uh, but clearly an example of a failure by the emergency room to provide adequate care. We talked to the doctor who actually ended up treating him, and he did his own investigation after that happened. The doctors had no idea that he was sitting out there waiting to get treated. They just didn't know. And he said afterwards that one of the problems was that a nurse had left early, and so they were a little short-staffed. So after that, he's no longer at that hospital, but he changed the procedures so that anyone who had certain symptoms would be brought back right away. He said it should never have happened. Ironically, that Randy Strickland was a volunteer at that hospital. And uh, he helped make the decision to go there because it was the closest hospital to go to. And plus, they thought when they got there that he would be treated pretty quickly because the, the waiting room was basically empty. He actually said, let's go there because I'll get home quicker. Wow. Mm -hmm. My goodness. One type of patient that came up several times in this reporting was pregnant women. In some of the cases you reviewed, women went in with either complications or they were actually in labor, and they were sent home or kept waiting for one reason or another. In some cases, that led to miscarriages or to the death of the mother. What's behind the trouble that ERs have in caring for these women? Yeah, um, it's before I, I answer that, I'd like to give a shout out to Brenda Goodman, who was the reporter who worked with Andy on this. I was just the editor, so um, I'm speaking for Brenda here. She did a fabulous job. As Andy referenced earlier, one of the reasons the law came into effect was because they had been dumping patients who did not have health insurance. And that was true with women in labor as well. One of the cases was a woman in California who had, was having her baby, she was in labor, and two hospitals refused to help her and because she didn't have insurance. And by the time she got to a hospital that would, the public hospital, her baby was in distress and it died. So that's why there's a special mention of labor in this act. So now we're finding, though, it's not so much the insurance question, it's more a lack of resources. Hundreds of hospitals have closed their obstetrical units in recent years. And in rural areas, it's even worse. 45% of rural counties don't have any hospital obstetrical services at all. So right, so when women in labor come to the hospital, sometimes they just don't know what to do. There's confusion about the law. They just don't want to deal with it. We had a case where we found where um, one of the nurses said, we don't deal with babies, and told the, the husband to go away with the wife. It, you know, so... That's not supposed to happen. All ER doctors are trained to deliver babies, and if it's a normal delivery, they can handle it. Now, if it's something that needs more care, they're supposed to try and stabilize the woman and then transfer her somewhere else. But in one case, one of those transfers took so long that the baby died while they were waiting to get transferred. I mean, it's a logical thought that if you're in labor that you could go to an ER right. and have your baby. It doesn't seem like it's a big leap 
uh, to, that you would not be able to get help there. No, it doesn't. But I think because of this lack of services, people just get scared and nervous and there's confusion again. So they're just not quite sure what to do. So they just want to send them somewhere where there are those services. There's also the fact that, and we profiled this case in California where a woman who was in labor basically got told to go home, essentially, that they she was diagnosed with a urinary tract infection when she was, in fact, in labor, and she went home, and uh, her mother-in-law quickly saw that she was definitely in labor, so they brought her back, and she eventually gave birth in the parking lot of the hospital, and went back to the same hospital, and uh, the baby was born very premature. And uh, luckily, very fortunately, the baby survived. Uh, the mom is doing okay, but it was a another case where um, uh, the ER personnel, in this case nurses, did not do a proper examination of the woman after she arrived. Right, and they were cited for lack of training and for not doing the proper screening exam, as Andy mentioned. And at that hospital also, they had a practice where nurses often were the ones who would screen them and then tell the doctor if they needed help, and that so the doctor wasn't as involved in the beginning. Another area that you came upon in going over these records was mental health care. In fact, one in seven of the violations involved someone with a mental health problem. Is that a symptom of a larger problem that the country has with mental health care? Obviously, we've heard lots of coverage of that, but it seems like it's sort of being reflected here as well. Yeah, it's, it's, the, the ER is kind of the last re, play, place of last resort for many people who are in mental health crises. And, and we found that very commonly the case where, um, where patients would come in with suicidal thoughts and um, either be kind of turned away in the sense that they were quickly evaluated and then basically discharged too soon or uh, or the hospital just didn't have any adequate resources and didn't end up transferring these folks to a place that could help. They're, the mental health system in our country needs a lot of improvements. And, and one one place that this our reporting shows is is what happens when they come when a person comes in mental health crisis. What happens when they come to an ER? Are there adequate places, enough adequate places, enough adequate psychiatric beds for these folks to be transferred to? And quite often the answer is no. There were some cases that they didn't report on, but that were in the records they looked at where some of the people were being sent to jail because they were suicidal and they just felt they didn't have the appropriate way to keep an eye to keep them from preventing suicide. So they were sent in jail. So they had a place to keep them Safe. That's unbelievable. Right. And, and that's not entirely the hospital's fault or the ER crew, uh, staff's fault. I mean, if there's no place for these people to get care within that hospital. There should be a place for these folks to go and not a jail, you know, a place where they can get therapeutic treatment. Right. That's a certainly a larger problem than an ER can solve. So what are some of the reasons overall that this happens? Obviously, every case is unique. But why would a hospital not deliver the care for someone who comes there in medical distress? Well, I think, uh, as Valerie mentioned before, uh, there are many hospitals that are struggling financially, and they don't have the resources to staff their ERs adequately, whether it's the nursing, whether it's physicians. Uh, and um, so a lot of these cases are a matter of not a lack of will, but a lack of re financial resources to be able to pro provide adequate care. 
And I guess if someone showed up who maybe was uninsured, the hospital would end up having to pay for that care out of pocket. They do. And one of the hospital administrators talked to us about that and said, you know, we have to give them care no matter what. And if we're not getting any reimbursement for it, it can get really difficult. And this was a hospital where for 30 days, they did not have a doctor in their ER. Was there anything that you found most shocking while working on this story? I think the, the, the surprise, the basic surprise that we had is here is a law that's been on the books for over 30 years. And it, and it, it seems like the number of violations are, have been steady over all those years. Uh, and so, that, so this is a law that should be really taken care of and hospitals should be very aware of it. And, and we found times where the staff wasn't adequately trained or hadn't, hadn't, didn't have the adequate knowledge of the law, which was shocking. We also did a special deep dive into 27 months of inspection reports, and we found that more that more than third, at least 34 patients died within EMTALA violations in cases involving EMTALA violations. And so it, it can be um, there can be kind of minor medical resorts, but it, there can be some devastating medical resorts like what we talked about with Randy Strickland. I think what shocked me, too, was that it can really happen to anyone. I mean, you could think this used to be a problem, people who, had, who lacked resources. A lot of these people, they did not lack resources. One was a nurse. Um, they had insurance. They came from all walks of life. So it, it really seemed like it, was, it could really happen to anyone, and that's what was really surprising to me. Well, and that is, brings me to my next question, which is, is there anything people can do to sort of prevent this situation from happening to them, going to the ER but not getting the help they need while they're there? Well, I would, I mean, it's, that's a, it's a kind of a difficult question to answer. There's several answers that you could uh, come up with for that. But I would say that basically a patient, if there's a life-threatening emergency or a limb-threatening emergency, they need to call 911 there, their family, and and do what the paramedics say to do and in all likelihood go to the nearest ER. Now for lesser emergencies, what, what a patient may want to do before they before that emergency occurs is do a little homework in terms of which, if, if there's a choice of hospitals, do a little homework in terms of medical quality of those hospitals and maybe determine, well, this might be the better place to go. Uh, but once someone gets there, they should be treated immediately if they're in a life-threatening emergency. And, uh, at the end of the day, patients, if they haven't been treated adequately, and they have knowledge of EMTALA, they can always file a complaint with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And those, complaint, those complaints are taken anonymously. Uh, and that's something they should pursue if they or their family members think that they didn't get the adequate care that the law entitles them to. And if you're curious as to how your hospital does or the hospitals in your area, CMS, as Andy mentioned them, um, they have a site called Hospital Compare that looks at the different quality and it has them ranked in a number of different ways, including emergency medicine. And there's another website called LeapFrog that also does hospital comparisons. Well, this was such a powerful report. Everyone should check it out. It's called Deprived of Care When ERs Break the Law. 
We'll put a link in our show notes. Valerie and Andy, thank you so much for talking with us today. You're welcome. You know the feeling. You can't sleep. You toss, you turn, and you think you'd do just about anything to catch some winks. Well, some people think they've found the answer, a supplement called melatonin. Last year, Americans spent more than $425 million on it. About 3 million adults use it, and so do half a million children. In fact, it's the second most used natural product for children. What's the appeal? Well, it helps them sleep. And many people believe it's safer than sleeping pills because it's a natural remedy. But is it? Between 2014 and 2018, calls to poison centers about melatonin jumped 86%. And since January of this year, there have been 30,000 calls about it, almost all of them about melatonin and kids. If you take too much, it can cause side effects like bad dreams, grogginess, drowsiness, dizziness, headache, nausea, and mild depression. So what is the truth about melatonin? Is it a helpful all-natural sleep aid or a dangerous drug or somewhere in between? We've asked WebMD medical editor Dr. Neha Pathak to tell us more. Welcome back, Dr. Pathak. Hi, how are you? I'm doing all right. Tell me about melatonin. Exactly what is this that people are taking? So it's really important to remember that melatonin is a hormone and not a vitamin. Something that your body makes. Yes, exactly. So whether we're talking about the hormone that our body's making or melatonin in the form of the supplement, it is something that is going to be released into our blood system and going to travel around looking for receptors all over our body. And we know that there are melatonin receptors in our brain, but there are also melatonin receptors in our kidney and in the blood vessels close to our heart. So we know the most about how it affects our brain which is to basically play a big part in our circadian rhythm, right? So the- Your body's internal clock. Exactly, the clock that helps us differentiate day and night, that cycle is really a big role for melatonin that we know about. And the other thing that melatonin does it, it, is it helps with the onset of sleep, so making us sleepy, and it also helps maintain sleep during that phase that is the night part of our circadian rhythm. Gotcha. Interesting. So you mentioned we sort of understand a little bit about how it works in the brain. What's going on in there? How does it work in the brain? Sure. So melatonin is made in the pineal gland in our brains, and it responds to the amount of light that we see. So as darkness falls, the pineal gland makes more and releases more melatonin into our blood system and into our spinal fluid. And when I say more, I mean a lot more. Hmm. So it's really, we're really inundated with melatonin. It peaks between and one to three hours of release. And that's when we start feeling really sleepy. And as we sleep, the levels start to kind of taper down. When we wake up in the morning, we see the light and we really, really make much less melatonin. So there's not really much in our blood system during the course of the day. So when people are taking it as a supplement, how are they using it? When can it be helpful? So the supplements actually can play a role for circadian rhythm problems. So that's really where we have problems like delayed sleep-wake disorder, where the natural melatonin levels are not rising and falling at the times that they normally should. So in conditions like 
jet lag or these types of disorders where there is a lot of insomnia before you're able to go to sleep and then you can't wake up in the morning, it's been shown to be effective. The other place that it can help is in jet lag. So when you're traveling to the east, eastward travel, it can help. And then it can also help some people really swear by and some doctors prescribe it for very, very difficult weekends when you stayed up quite late and you need to get ready for that Monday morning work meeting. It can be effective to help pull that sleep cycle a little bit earlier into the night to help you get a full night's sleep. So is this something that you can take before you go to bed, like a sleeping pill, and it will help you fall asleep that night? Or is it something that you should take a little differently? So this is a great question. It depends on the reason that you're taking the melatonin. If you are treating sleep onset insomnia, trouble falling asleep, then you want to take it around the time of your bedtime because melatonin usually peaks in about an hour. You want to take it closer to your bedtime so you can fall asleep. In about an hour. In about an hour. Okay. If you're taking it because of a problem with your circadian rhythm, you are really trying to shift your circadian rhythm up, then you want to take it about two to three hours before bedtime because you're really trying to say you're normally falling asleep at 10 or 11 p.m. according to your circadian rhythm and you want to shift it earlier into the night. Then you take it several hours before the bedtime that you want. So since this is a hormone and not a sleeping pill, is it something that has to build up in your body or is it something that you can take like an aspirin and feel better or get to sleep right away? Not quite. It's not going to help the average normal healthy person by very much. The studies show that maybe taking it will help the sleep onset improve by about 30 minutes. In some cases, 13 minutes. So okay. it's, it's really kind of like if you're a normal healthy person, then it's probably not going to give you the biggest bang for your buck in terms of improving uh, the time it takes for you to fall asleep or maintain sleep over the course of the night. Are there any people who shouldn't take it or any things that they should keep in mind that could make it a little bit dangerous for some people? So like all supplements, the FDA does not really regulate the supplement market very closely. You can't be quite sure what's in your melatonin when you're buying it. So there was actually a study where a group looked at, I think, 30 different available preparations of melatonin. And they found that in those various preparations, some had 80% less melatonin that, than what was described on the bottle. Wow. And some had over 400% more. Oh my goodness. So it can have other contaminants like serotonin, which is a naturally occurring neurotransmitter, but serotonin can interact with a lot of other medications that people are taking, leading to complications like shivering, diarrhea, and other more significant problems as well if there's too much serotonin in the system. So it sounds like there's a pretty wide variety of the quality of the different supplements that are available out there. Is there any way for people to know a safe option of what they're buying? It's really important to talk to your doctor about what you are thinking of buying. They'll help direct you to something that'll be a safer bet. Are there people who should 
uh, or situations in which it might be, you might want to be a little cautious about taking melatonin. Sometimes I know, you know, supplements can affect different people who have different health problems or are taking other medications. Right, absolutely. One, for some people, especially if they take higher doses, it can actually make you quite groggy and very sleepy. So you should think about not driving after you take the melatonin. It can also interact with certain medications. So you want to be careful of that and go over your medication list with your doctor to make sure the melatonin isn't going to interact with it. We also don't have great long-term studies on how people do with it if they're taking it for many, many, many years. We don't know how it necessarily affects pregnant women, people with mood disorders and anxiety. So these are all conditions that we're not quite sure what the long-term results are gonna be. And I wanna follow up on something you mentioned a little earlier about using melatonin in children. I really had no idea that so many children are taking melatonin to fall asleep. Is it safe? It has been best studied in children that have lower melatonin levels, like children with autism spectrum disorder and children that have ADHD. And in those children who are likely going to need it for a longer time period, it's been shown to be relatively safe, as far as we know at this time. So based on those studies, some doctors also use it for children that have sleep onset insomnia. So again, another circadian rhythm problem. The American Academy of Pediatrics in particular really thinks it's very important for parents to have a discussion with their children's pediatricians before putting their children on melatonin. That makes sense. So don't just go to the pharmacy and buy melatonin for your child. Be sure to talk to their pediatrician first. Absolutely. Okay. So it sounds like melatonin is fairly safe as long as you're careful with how you use it, especially if you're giving it to a child. But your best bet is to maybe try some other things to fall asleep before you turn to melatonin. Absolutely. So what we call sleep hygiene, things like dimming the room, not using screens for two to three hours before you go to bed, going to your bedroom when you're sleepy, those types of things help tremendously. Scheduling a sleep time and a wake-up time all are very important before we go to a supplement like melatonin. Just because it's naturally occurring in our bodies doesn't mean it's necessarily going to give us the results that we want. All right, some good things to keep in mind when we all try to get a good night's sleep tonight. Thank you, Dr. Pathak. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to include some good information in our show notes about this topic. More ideas on how to beat insomnia and get enough sleep, and how to safely choose and take supplements. The holidays are a fun and exciting time for kids, but some of the things that make this time of year so special can actually pose a safety risk to children. Whether you're a parent or planning to host children at your home this season, you'll want to learn about some common health hazards and the steps you can take to ensure that everyone has a happy holiday. Number one, keep medications out of little hands. You may be in the habit of storing medicines in a safe place in your own home, but your guests may bring unsecured pill bottles or vitamins in their handbags and suitcases. Be sure to keep those bags in a place that kids can't reach. And when you're visiting another person's home, ask that they put away all medications, including products like diaper rash cream and antibiotic ointment. Also, toss out toxic plants. Holly bushes are beautiful, but can be poisonous to people and pets. 
Eating just a few berries can cause vomiting and diarrhea. Mistletoe also has a potential toxin, and while eating a small amount probably won't poison anyone, it's best to keep both plants out of your home if small children are around. What about that festive holiday decor? Fragile ornaments can break and cause cuts. Tensile and small ornaments can be choking hazards. A good rule to remember, if it's small enough to fit into the mouth of a toddler or baby, it's too small to play with. Either put potentially dangerous decorations high on the tree or skip them until children are older. While you're at it, childproof the Christmas tree. Use only plain water in tree stands. Tree preservatives, whether they're homemade or commercial, can be harmful to children or pets if swallowed. And clean up fallen needles quickly. They can cause painful cuts in the mouth and throat if swallowed. And beware of battery-powered products. Button-shaped batteries are especially risky, but any shape can cause burns in the esophagus within two hours after they're swallowed. Don't leave batteries sitting out, and securely tape any battery compartments that may open if you drop the device. When you're planning holiday parties, keep kids in mind. Don't leave leftover drinks sitting around during or after a get-together. Even a sip of alcohol can be dangerous for young children. Party foods like popcorn and peanuts are choking hazards for little ones, too. If you're hosting children under four, serve alternative snacks. Think twice about serving foods that could cause burns, like hot soups or foods in a chafing dish. Take the time for a few safety precautions, and you'll ensure a happy, healthy holiday season for your kids and yourself. Our Tweak of the Week. Rethink your holiday traditions. There are lots of them at this time of year, from holiday cards to gingerbread houses to gift-giving for just about everyone in your life. We're all for it if you love it, but if you notice you're not into it or it starts to feel more like a burden, that's a good sign it's time to rethink or even ditch the tradition. If it doesn't bring meaning or joy, give yourself permission to move on to other things that do. Who knows, it might be the start of something more rewarding. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Talk to you next time.